0: This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid Missouri's only in depth weekly art show. Recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. <laughs> Each month, we head out around the state to visit with those artists that are the Missouri Arts Council's featured monthly artists. Somehow, November flashed by without our usual visit, so this week, we are catching up with the November artists, a singer-songwriter in St. Louis, a conceptual artist in Kansas City, a painter in West Plains, and a watercolour artist with a very specific oeuvre in Independence. Before we head out, though, I want to say a quick thank you to everyone who has made a donation to KOPN during this giving month of December. And to encourage anyone who hasn't quite got round to it yet to either visit our website at kopn.org or call the office during business hours on 573-874-1139 and make a donation. Every little helps to keep your independent community radio station broadcasting across mid-Missouri. And off we go. First stop today, St. Louis. When the art you create does not neatly fit into any existing genre, then the answer is to create a new genre, which is exactly what St. Louis based singer Candice Ivory did after the release of her most recent album, Love Music, in 2015, calling herself the Queen of Avant Soul to encapsulate the multiple styles her music draws from. Sounds which, in combination, create a musical voice that speaks to the future rather than the past, but also Always retains at its heart soul music. And Candace is certainly no newcomer to the world of music, having started her singing career on Memphis's Beale Street at the age of 15. She comes from a family steeped in the musical traditions of the Mississippi Delta, and her great uncle was legendary Memphis bluesman Will Roy Sanders. At 18 she had her own radio show on Memphis's jazz station WUMR, started her own jazz groups and performed at the Kennedy Center in Washington D.C. She is also a visual artist, is currently in grad school studying art history, has been on TV in Iceland and somewhere in her closet she has an Elvis suit. We have a lot to discuss. Candice, would I like to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Diana. (laughs) I feel like we should start with that Elvis suit, Candice. When I look at you in a gorgeous pink and purple silk dress on the cover of your album, you do not strike me as someone who has an Elvis suit in her closet, so do tell.
1: (laughs) Well, you never know what you'll find at one of my concerts. (laughs) So. (laughs) So I I always like to throw that disclaimer out there. We like to keep it interesting. And, you know, of course, coming from Memphis, Elvis, his presence permeates the city even now. Uh, so it just seemed like the right thing to do at that particular concert. So I had a special suit made for me. Of course, it's, it's nothing new. Everybody was making those, you know, James Brown, we, Rufus Thomas, the OJs, everybody wore those jumpsuits in the 70s. But Elvis's is just something special.
0: So most people in Memphis have an Elvis suit in their closet is what you're telling me. <laughs>
1: I hope so. I mean, and some blue suede shoes
0: also. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me about Avant Soul and what that means to you. Well, it's interesting because for so
1: many years, I had people trying to get me to describe what my music is and what it is that I do. A and R reps, you know, industry reps, record labels. are like, "Well, what do you do? What is what do you call this? What is this?" Or telling me that I need to define it, which for me, that's not something that I ever really wanted to do. I just wanted to be me, which embodies a, a wide breadth of things, genres, eras, lots of different influences. So. I came up with the term Avant Soul after I moved to St. Louis. My former uh, teacher, Reggie Workman, who was the bass player for John Coltrane, he was like, I don't know if you want to use the term Avant because it means that you're too far ahead of the curve. It means that people won't be able to catch up with you or (laughs) that, you know, you'll probably just be lost in obscurity. I'm like, (laughs) "Well, aren't we all? (laughs) So, so I just decided to keep going with that because regardless of how cutting edge the sounds may be or how I experiment with sound and visuals, the root of it is all to connect with people at a soul level. And that's what soul music is about. It's just about being able to connect with people.
0: Was there ever a time when you thought you were going to be anything other than a musician?
1: <laughs> Absolutely even now I still, (laughs) even now I'm still wondering what am I going to be when I finally grow up? Uh, (laughs) I'm always, I've always thought about doing different things or, you know, I have interests and I just kind of go with my curiosity takes me. So I've done so many different types of jobs over the years. And at one point I, everybody in my family thought I would be great as a a news anchor. I don't understand why they thought that, but this was really the direction they were trying to push me. (laughs) (laughs) But as a 15-year-old artist at the time, I always was just like, well, music will always clearly be a part of my life, but maybe I'll think about doing other things.
0: Well, as I mentioned in the intro, you come from a musical family and your great uncle was Will Roy Sanders, who was a legendary blues musician. How much of a role did your great uncle play in your early musical career? My uncle and I were
1: uh, very close. I spent a lot of time. He used to own a juke joint, which, you know, I don't know if people still know what those are. I did a... um, Master class at Washington University a couple of weeks ago, and I asked the students if they knew what a juke joint was, and most of them did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> he used to own a juke joint called Green's Lounge, which was uh, in a neighborhood called Castalia in Memphis, and that burned down. And later, he would go become the house band with the Fieldstones at the Blue Worms. So, I was there most most weekends when I was in town. And basically his legacy has been one that I've tried to carry on in the sense of just teaching it. I don't really consider myself a blues musician, even though I did just record a blues album. (laughs) I just try to continue to teach the legacy of blues and gospel, which is one that I grew up in watching him and under his tutelage.
0: I know he passed away in 2010, but you had already released two albums by then. What did, what were his comments on your early albums?
1: When I was actually going to, I went to new school in New York. And as I was going there to study in the jazz and contemporary music program, uh, when I decided to go to school for jazz, my uncle was like, well, I'm glad you're going. I've never been able to understand that. You need to do that because that's <laughs> something you can understand. <laughs> so he was supportive in the sense that I think that's something that you can do. I don't think it's a world for me, but he was supportive of me em- embracing in my curiosity.
0: One thing I have to ask you about is how you ended up performing live on Icelandic television in 2007. How did that happen?
1: Well, I have friends all over the world and I passed through Iceland on my way to Europe for a completely different trip. And I was like, oh my goodness, what a strange and curious and fascinating place. I've got to play here. <laughs> and so I discovered that I actually did have a friend who was Icelandic, a very good friend who was Icelandic. And at some point, we decided, well, yes, you should definitely come to Iceland on one of your next European tours. And so It just happened somehow. We just manifested that. And (laughs) I ended up playing on, I guess, what would be the equivalent of like their Dave Letterman show. And the funny thing is, I actually did meet a very prominent St. Louis musician while I was in Iceland. (laughs) I met uh, Luther Thomas, who's just a really visionary artist and uh, trumpet player there and woodwinds. So Luther ended up helping me out. He ended up taking care of me when I was sick. His wife gave me all the jewelry that I wore for my show. It was great.
0: Well, let's talk about your music. Love Music was your first solo album since your sophomore album in 2005 called Questography. So that was a 10 year gap and that followed your debut album Path Undefined in 2003. How do you feel your music changed between each of those albums?
1: Well, I always leave little clues between records. So usually you can find some song on a previous album or project that will kind of link you to give you an insight to where I might be going next. I just do think that between the span of the records, it wasn't actually that long between recordings, I would say, that I put the albums out. The first two were actually recorded quite close together. And between the first album and the second album, I decided that I really wanted to explore the marriage of analog and digital as the world was gaining new technology and music was starting to change. I had been, you know, largely rooted in a world that was really traditional, really acoustic instruments, live performance. And I was moving into a world that was more synth-based, more electronic. And I was really getting fascinated with that. So love music is about me being able to make
0: the happy marriage between those two worlds. Well, there is a song on your debut album called Morning Light, which is your, you, you I mean, you sound young. It feels very sweet. It's kind of a smooth soul. You've got a bewitching bass line. In
1: Breath against my cheek. Busy patterns of your slowly fading dreams.
0: I hope you're dreaming about me. And then you revisit it on Love Music, your 2015 album, where it has an altogether different feel. Electronic (laughs) heavy with deeper and darker vocals. You sound much more mature and wise to the world. Light through the window, you have sleep I rock
1: the bed, but you too deep Don't want to wake you, you too sweet I got to tell it you, you make me
0: What made you revisit and rework this particular song? It's interesting that you
1: bring that up. I think for every song that I've written, there's probably about three or four different versions of of that song. So (laughs) that's just, you know, the kind of writing that I do. I like it to be able to translate into different worlds, different audiences. I play for a really diverse group of people. I I wouldn't say that I have one following or one audience that I specifically focus on. I just think that the connection of people is about being able to, in that moment, connect best with who you are, with what you have in that space. So revisiting these tunes has been really interesting because I think love music is just about love isn't always, you know, it isn't always rainbows, It isn't always pain and hurt either. I think there's a happy balance in medium. So Morning Light 2 is just kind of another expression of love, maybe a a more casual one.
0: (laughs) You sound like you are very in love with the person in Morning Light. And then by Morning Light 2, you sound like you've just had enough. (laughs) So I wondered if there's a natural person behind that. By morning light too, it was somebody completely different. <laughs> I mean, you traveled all over the United States and all around the world. You performed in Iceland, France, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, Australia. Was there any one place that stood out for you where you thought, hmm, these people really get me? Oh, you'll get me in trouble, Diana.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do hope that I can return to... France and do more playing there. I feel, you know, a real connection in France, not just in Paris, but also the French countryside. It's been really wonderful to go there. I meet lovely artists. I do think that the style of music that I've been able to play there has been, I would say, mostly jazz and blues. It would be nice to bring back the kind of more electronic side of music there just to get a sense of, you know, how people would receive that because usually when I'm there, you know, we have a stripped-down band some of the time. I, we didn't have that in Iceland so much, but I think in France I've played in a more stripped-down setting, so it would be nice to bring my full band back there.
0: Maybe it's the Josephine Baker-St. Louis connection, are you the 21st century Josephine Baker to, <laughs> to France?
1: Well, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't shy away from the notion. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. I think they just, you know, inducted her into their official hall now, Mm -hmm. their pantheon. This is really amazing. And I mean, she's definitely a legacy and huge footsteps to fill. So I'd be honored to follow in that leadership and that visionary artistry that she had
0: well, let's go out with a little of your music. There's a song on Love Music called Hitchhiking in a Dali Painting, which is such a great title. Tell us a little bit about that song. This song was actually based on a dream that I had. And it's it kind of
1: played out. One morning I woke up and I had this really intense dream and I was in the process of recording this album. And so I just got up and decided I would record it. So basically sat there and got my gear and played. And so it was just a dream, an ethereal vision I had about hitchhiking and meeting all these interesting strangers along the way. And the advice that they would give me as I was trying to head to my destination. And I think it's interesting that you picked that song because it definitely is a a clue or a nugget for the next project.
0: (laughs) Mm, Okay, intriguing. Well, here it is, Hitchhiking in a Dali Painting. Ivory's Avon Soul Music, visit her website at CandiceIvory.com or search for her on Spotify, where you can find all three of her albums. And Candice, thank you so much for telling us about the Elvis suit and for (laughs) taking time to chat today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real honor. Thank you, Diana.
0: The beauty of art is that there is no right answer. A work that is profoundly intriguing to one person might leave another person simply wondering why. Why is a pile of bricks in the middle of a gallery a brilliant work of conceptual critique? Or is it? Why does a floating Rothko abstract work fill some viewers with a sense of peace and just irritates others? And then there's the question of which artists have access to the world of museums and galleries and how does an artist navigate the institutional nature of the art world? Well, my next guest, sculptor and conceptual artist Marco Rosichelli has spent his artistic career exploring these questions of who and what belongs. His work scrutinizes the nuances of institutions, the effects of systemic and bureaucratic structures within the art world, and explores both the limitations and the potentialities of rules. As he writes, his work attempts to feed the mouth that bites the hand that feeds. Marco Rosigelli, welcome to Speaking of the Arts.
2: Thank you for having me on, Diana. It's great to be here.
0: I love that quote that you are attempting to feed the mouth that bites the hand that feeds. (laughs) How is that attempt going? Does it make you a darling or a pariah of the art world?
2: Yeah, I mean, somewhere in between or maybe dealing with a little bit of obscurity. (laughs) Um, You know, it's the the tough road to hoe of being a conceptual artist is uh, somewhere you wind up in between those two moments, right?
0: So you describe your work as nestling between legacies of conceptual art and institutional critique. So for people who are not steeped in the world of art making, would you unpack that for us?
2: Sure. So conceptual art or conceptual artists are people who deal primarily with ideas. Uh, So sometimes that's separate or apart from dealing with other things like representation, representation. But a conceptual artist is mostly concerned with the idea, right, or the big idea of the work or conveying that idea to the viewer, hopefully. Institutional critique has to do a little bit more with artworks coming out of the 60s or 70s and artists are pushing back at the institution. Historically, I think that started with like critique of the gallery system or the museum sort of dealing with the white cube. But for me and my work, I dealt with that more broadly and that sort of has tendrils that go out into capitalism or consumerism, consumer culture, et cetera.
0: I think there's a lot of, I don't get it, speech and thought bubbles that float around work that occupies the conceptual art world. And you have stated in the past that the importance in your work is about choice, the choice you provide to the viewer and their choice in how they respond. Talk a little bit about that idea of choice in the context of your work.
2: Yeah, I mean, all of my works are hopefully dealt with in a way that they're compelling visually also. Um, so, you know, there's multiple entry points into my work, you know, so you can deal with it on the formal aspects. But usually most of my works are also dealing with a big idea or a big concept. And so then it's that choice of level of engagement, right? Do I spend time as the viewer to think about the piece or maybe go home and think about it or come back to it and reflect upon, like, what is that idea or what is that meaning, Um and you know, it's oftentimes in my work mixed with a, a certain amount of like sarcasm or humor as well.
0: Do you feel the need to explain your works to viewers?
2: I don't know that I'm terribly good at that, <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I don't I don't know. Like oftentimes, so I work collaboratively as well, and my my longtime art partner, gentleman by the name of Ryan Peter Miller, who lives in Chicago, often talks about our work. We talk about our work in relationship to this idea of like an intentional fail, like that the, the piece maybe is, is just a inside baseball for us, or like, maybe it's, it's destined to, to not work out <laughs> and reach everyone. And I think, you know, I'm okay with that. We're okay with that.
0: I mean, you obviously love making art because you're an artist. Do you like the wider art world that you inhabit?
2: Um, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess I feel kinship with my fellow artists. Um, I'm definitely a maker and I like thinking about art, producing art and, and talking about that. I think my work necessitates some sort of amount of like awareness of the art world for complete understanding in most cases. Um, So, you know, maybe in some cases I'm making art for artists, which is probably problematic um, for its reach and scope and audience. But do I like the art world? Yeah. I mean, I I was raised in a family that owned businesses. My parents owned a Radio Shack and a A&W restaurant. And so I sort of grew up in these sort of corporate franchise worlds, dealing with institutions and rules and governance on the way things are dealt with. And then that was all like in a setting of dealing with consumers, right? And so I, I think I feel comfortable having an institution to play up against, right, whether that's influenced from my young age or not, um, a little bit unclear. But I think the art world does provide that for me as an adult.
0: So talking about your childhood, you grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, mm-hmm. and you said you, your parents emigrated there for or moved there for reasons of military servitude and space exploration. So I'm curious how much NASA influenced your early vision of the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, my dad was in the Italian Air Force and moved there to work in that industry. You know, and then pretty shortly I was really young, we moved to the West Coast and opened a Radio Shack or an electronics business. And so part of, of what he was doing every day was fixing things of an electronic nature. You know, this is back when when things of an electronic nature could be fixed. And so as I grew up, like a lot of my evening tasks when I came out of school was to desolder circuit boards from TVs or what have you, you know, take the capacitors off and put them in this bin, and take the resistors off and put them in this bin. And so I grew up, in a sense, um, building and making things in a way, you know, just in an electronics lab.
0: So were you a child that would sit for hours drawing rockets or comic book stories? Or were you, as a child, more of an artist that built tree houses and rock formations? And at what point did you shift from wanting to make art that people might want to buy to making art that people might want to ponder?
2: So, yes, as a child, I was more on the latter end. I was building tree forts and working outside. We had quite a bit of property where I grew up in the woods. And so it was like working with lumber and rope and making forts and swings and these kinds of things. Um, I think for the shift for me to become a conceptual artist came midway through my undergraduate career. Um, At one point, I was just making a range of things. And I think... Sometimes those things dealt with concept in the way of it being about narrative or communicating an idea, but I would call them less conceptual based works. And then I would also make formal objects, right just things that I enjoyed making the process, you know, things you could hang on the wall, et cetera. Um, but there was a there was a shift there at some point where i I became more interested in the in the idea of things and you know I probably can credit my undergrad professor for that. she was a performance artist and, and also definitely interested in conceptual art. And so, you know, the, the one thing sort of drifted away. Um, it still informs the other, but definitely made a shift.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the works that people can see on your website. There is one I want to ask you about called Outstanding in the Field, which you created together with your regular collaborator, Ryan Peter Miller, and which is a comment on institutional critique. Tell us about Outstanding in the Field.
2: Outstanding in the Field sort of Started at a conversation that happened in my my day job as an artist and an educator. I was at uh, having a conversation with my colleagues at my university, and uh, one of my colleagues mentioned having a show in New York, and and sort of everyone was like wowed by that. And then I mentioned I had had a show in Chicago, and it it didn't get much traction in the conversation, um, and it got me thinking about just sort of the cachet of like being able to say I have a show in <laughs> one locale versus another, and what that means, and so. I called Ryan as I often do, you know, we live apart, so we have to figure out ways to ideate together. And I said, you know, I have this idea thinking about New York and what New York means and like what the, you know, what the pinnacle for us as artists might be, right. would be showing at a a blue chip gallery in New York. And I had done a little research and figured out that there were several New York's that weren't New York city in the country. None of them are really towns anymore. They're, you know, abandoned towns or townships. Um, And so we worked through the idea together. But it was this idea of like, well, what if we could say that we had an exhibition at Gagosian Gallery in New York? Right. And then the truth is there in the lie. Right. And and what does that mean? Does that does that impress anybody? Right. You know, thinking back to that thing I said earlier about the sort of intentional fail of the of the moment.
0: So describe this work.
2: So we remotely hired a photographer in New York to go and take photographs of the Gagosian which is, you know, one of the more prestigious galleries in New York. So we had them had a photographer take documentation of the front and the side of the building and then we had a building wrap made and then we picked a location that seemed to make sense and New York, Texas seemed to to fit well for a bunch of different reasons. And uh, we uh, erected scaffolding and then put up the building wrap. So this moment of simulacra, like making the building sort of appear out in the middle of a field. And, you know, it ties to that old farmer's joke. You know, how did the farmer get an award? Well, he was outstanding in his field.
0: (laughs) So in the middle of a field, there is this structure that's there temporarily that is a vinyl wrap. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it looks like there's just the facade of the Gagosian Gallery in New York City in the middle of a field of New York, Texas.
2: Right. And if documented properly, you can get angles of it that reinforce the illusion, right? And then there's documentation that sort of lets that fall apart.
0: One thing I'm curious about is how the money flows in the world of conceptual art. I mean, you're not making things that people are going to buy and take home and put on their walls. How do you fund things like Outstanding in the Field or one called Remade in China, where you went to China? I mean, who's paying for all of this?
2: Mostly me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, I am pretty good at getting grant funding. So Remade in China, I was able to get some local grant funding to pay for the travel, to go to China to make the work. But a lot of it's just covered by me. And yeah, you're right, there aren't... um, There aren't a lot of things to sell at the end, or at least I'm not interested in trying to figure out those moments of what could be sold or how could you uh, capitalize on sort of those visuals. But yeah, it's uh, it's an expensive hobby. (laughs) It's
0: a good job you have a day job. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So are non-fungible tokens a means of making money for conceptual artists? Not that I can get my head around what a non-fungible token is, but it just seems like that might fit (laughs) your genre.
2: Yeah, I when I first read about that I immediately conceptualized a few projects and <laughs> and called Ryan and we talked about it. I think we maybe we decided that we're both a little too old to fully <laughs> understand uh what's happening there. Like I generally get the gist of it, but I I also don't quite understand some of the value that gets placed on these things. And you know, I sort of get this idea of like wanting to collect things or own a collection and you know, and in the art world, like you own a Pollock, right? And it's like, well, I want to put that in my house or I want to put that in my business up on the wall. I want people to see it. And then I'm taking the the value or worth of that item and uh, associating it with me. But I don't understand how that works with NFTs, right? Like I know these things can be shown digitally, but um, yeah, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Because there seems to be moments where like people strike it rich, so...
0: Right. Well, like I said before, it's it's a good job that you are the uh, foundations coordinator at the University of Central Missouri and an associate professor of art and design so you can fund your expensive hobby until <laughs> you work out how non-fungible tokens might work. Right. For yeah. you. <laughs> Well, Marco Rosicelli's website is a veritable rabbit hole of questions to which we all get to bring our own answers. You can visit Marco's world of conceptual art at rosichelli.com, which is spelled R-O-S-I-C-H-E-L-L-I.com. And Marco, thank you so much for making time to chat about your work today.
2: You're most welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: I remember an art teacher friend of mine retiring from a long career teaching high school art and saying that now, finally, she would have the mental space to create her own art again after decades of sharing her creative ideas with her students. Not that sharing her incredible talents and passion for art wasn't something that she had done with anything less than a full and open heart, but after a lifetime of sharing her artistic inspirations, those ideas would now be seeded on her own canvases. And my next guest this evening, Janie Siemens-Hale, also spent a long career of 28 years teaching art to high school students. And now retired in West Plains, Missouri, she has devoted herself to painting both in the studio and on plein air. Her works, mostly in oil, depict the lushness of rural Missouri, rolling landscapes, country roads, dappled brooks, birds and flowers, plus richly vibrant still life works of the bounty our gardens produce. Hello, Janie, and welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Well, let's start by going way back through the mists of time to Fayetteville and Hope, Arkansas, where you grew up and where you started on your lifelong journey of creating. What are your earliest memories of wanting to make art? Oh, my goodness.
3: I think the first things I remember are really not with painting or drawing. It was making things with my hands. I would scavenge whatever things I could find and build out of them. So it's a wonder I didn't become a sculptor because I really enjoyed that, but I didn't. I can remember making covered wagons out of matchbooks and just whatever I could find, I would I'd try to make something out of it.
0: I think my mom used to keep old washing up liquid bottles and, and boxes of cereal and egg box cartons that I could then, you know, stick pieces together <laughs>
3: <laughs> exactly. That's that's what I would use. I, in my earlier work, I actually used the same type of things in my collages. Whatever I could find that would have some meaning to me, whether it did anyone else, I would include that in, in a collage. Might be a gum wrapper or I don't know, whatever I could find. Trash the treasures.
0: <laughs> exactly. On your website, you talk about how you saw a touring show of old master paintings at a young age. And I'm curious how that show found its way to Hope, Arkansas, and in what way that opened your eyes to art. Well,
3: being from a very small town, there's a ladies auxiliary group that brought in a traveling art show. It was in a bus. And it was all old masters. And to walk through there and see that someone could take paint and create something so realistic that you felt like you could touch it was just amazing to me. It's just, I I didn't know you could do that. (laughs) I didn't have art and any art in school, and there were no museums close by. So that was my first introduction to even knowing there was such a thing as art. I think I was probably in second grade when it came through. And, uh, you know, they could have even been reproductions for all I know. I just remember thinking, this is amazing. Somebody actually took paint and did this. And so I was hooked. Then I started my own little escapades into watercolor with, uh, you know, the Crayola watercolor sets and they were interesting.
0: <laughs> I, too, loved art at school. But when I was a teenager, I probably like you know, most teenagers, I was super focused on getting things right. And I remember we had to draw a shoe in a class and I really, really struggled with the perspective. And I ended up with a rare C grade and I was so crushed and I was so crushed that I decided that I was going to stop doing art. And that, that was it. It ended it for me, which, you know, in hindsight was really a mistake. <laughs> and my teacher was devastated. What, what kept you going during your early art struggles with your watercolor, Crayola sets? I mean, we come to a point where we can't, as children or, or teenagers, where we can't put down on the page what we see in our head. What kept you going?
3: Well, I tell you, I discovered paint by number, mm. <laughs> and I did those for, oh, forever, I think. And then a little store in our town opened up, and she started carrying illustrated how-to books for painting. And so I started with that, and my earliest attempts at oil were quite ghastly. <laughs> they were <laughs> really bad but you know it was just so much fun and I just really enjoyed the exploration of it that I I wanted to be better and uh, I met a there was a young lady that was several years older than me that was really gifted artist and she kind of took me under her wing and showed me how to do some things and really let me know that I had the possibility of being an artist but not having, you know, art in school, when it came time to graduate, I didn't even know that you could go to an art school. I mean, that's how rural I lived, um, that uh, I majored in business. <laughs> and, of course, then I ended up getting married, had a family. And when I went back, I told my husband, I said, well, I'm, I want to teach, but I do not want to teach business I would like to teach art. So that's what I did. I went back, finished a degree in art and began the love of my life.
0: <laughs> well, today you mostly paint representationally, but as you mentioned earlier, you were a collage and an abstract artist before the oil painting, representation oil painting. What was the impetus to change genre? What moved you over to representational art?
3: Uh, I think... A good friend of mine was actually a lady I was teaching with was a plain, is a plain air painter. And she invited me to go with her to a plain air event. And so I thought, you know, I probably should do a little practicing on actually drawing things representationally. Mm -hmm. And before I go, anyway, that was kind of the impetus for that. And after going to the plain air event, I loved it it was just so refreshing to be outside and painting exactly what you saw and even though those first few years when i went they were disasters <laughs> and i had either torched them or painted over them but you know it there was all a learning experience so.
0: From looking through the work on your website, you appear, from what I see on the website, to work quite small. Most of your works are 12 by 12 or 5 by 7, which is pretty tiny. What is it that appeals to you about working on that small scale?
3: I think probably for plain air painting and for landscape in general, I typically do those for a study. I don't necessarily consider them finished pieces. And so that's probably why most of the landscapes anyway are are an 8 by 10 or a 9 by 12. Once in a while, I'll do 11 by 14. And I have done 16 by 20s, but uh, that's just not often. I just like the intimacy of a smaller work.
0: What catches your eye as a painter?
3: Oh, the way light hits objects mostly, or just the... The mood of the day, what the atmosphere is. And sometimes it's also, um, some of the latest things I've done are the effects of the weather on old automobiles, or there's an old truck that's parked out behind my house on a farm, and I've painted that <laughs> truck so many times. <laughs> you know, it's just interesting. You can just imagine the what all that truck has done, because it's an old farm truck, and uh, they they have a story, and I like to tell a story.
0: Right. When, when you think back over your body of work, both the abstract and collage series you made and your current body of representational paintings, are there any works which really stand out for you, either because of the story they tell or a memory that they evoke?
3: I would say for the earlier works of collage, our oldest son was in the first Gulf War, and I did a large body of work during that time it kept me sane knowing that he was in the front lines and so I would say he has most of those because they were pretty representative of what I was feeling at that time and and what I was concerned about for him um I think probably the later works the ones that uh Have the most significance, I guess, would be ones I've done of flower arrangements. And I I haven't posted those because they're for me. We lost two sisters Mm. back-to-back a couple of summers ago, about three summers ago. And flower arrangements that people gave us, I did paintings of those so that myself and our sister that's left could have them forever. So those, those are probably the most sentimental paintings I've ever done. But the rest are just, I love them when I do them, and then I'm ready for the next one.
0: <laughs> so you don't have a problem selling them, letting go of them?
3: No, not really. I, I've i even been known to somebody walks in and falls in love with something, and I don't think they can afford it, just giving it to them. <laughs> hmm.
0: What would be... Your dream painting trip, money, no object, anywhere in the world, and you can have one old master by your side as your instructor. Where would you go and who would you take with you?
3: Well, I would like to go to Italy, but I would need to go by way of France so that I could take Monet with me. I'm not sure he'd want to go, but I would like to take him. He doesn't get a choice. (laughs) No.
0: Well, you can see the artwork of Janie Siemens-Hale on her website at JanieSiemensHale.com. And you can also find her work in two galleries in West Plains, the Frame Shopping Gallery and 3C Studio and Flower Market, as well as at First Street Frame and Art Gallery in Mountain Home, Arkansas. Janie, thank you for telling us about your art and for dedicating so many years to teaching art. It has been a delight chatting with you. Thank you. I have enjoyed it very much. Watercolour artist Dana Forrester paints ghosts, the ghosts of advertising past the worn and weathered residual signs of Coca-Cola or Wrigley's Double Mint or Lucky Strike ads that once covered the brick sidings of buildings, but which are now shadows of their former selves. And back in the 1970s, it was a brick wall painting that got Dana into his first prestigious American Watercolour Society show, one of just 300 works chosen from a field of 9,000, and a show which suddenly put Dana's work alongside that of watercolour master Andrew Wyeth. Today, Dana is a signature member of both the American Watercolour Society and the National Watercolour Society, and is not only known for his brick wall paintings, but also his paintings of corvettes and classic cars, which often sit in front of his vanishing brick wall signs. Welcome to the show, Dana. Hello, how are you? I am well and delighted to have you on the show. I love the origin story of your painting career. That the most crucial art discovery of your life was a brick wall in your hometown of Kirksville. Tell us about that day that you happened upon, or maybe noticed for the first time, the Stampert Feed Building in Kirksville.
4: That's right. It was two blocks away from where I grew up, and I had no idea that ad sign was there. And uh, I was walking through the downtown area of Kirksville, photographing everything from my uh, eye level down. And I came out, and in those days, this was 74, 75, I had to change a roll of film. And as I stood across the street, I switched the roll of film, turned around, and, whoa, here's a big Coca-Cola sign. Oh, no, it's, it's painted over another Coke sign. And actually, in that segment of the wall, there was five different layers of it. And uh, some of them, I still haven't figured out what they are.
0: (laughs) So you photographed the wall, and then that became the first of your brick wall paintings. And what is completely incredible is that that very first painting, with all its complexities and shadows and overpainting and challenges, and despite that being the first brick wall you had ever painted, you got accepted into the most prestigious watercolor show in America. To what extent did getting into that show with that painting seal your artistic future? Well,
4: the success that I had from that one image led itself into others. I began to find more of those walls, the ghost walls, if you call them that. And it turned on a spigot that had never been there before. And I got so excited about it, I just kept producing some of those. I had been painting for a while, but didn't have the recognition and uh, everything that I got with the Brick series.
0: So you were already painting in watercolor. You just were looking for something, a subject to enter into that prestigious watercolor show.
4: I'd had the catalogs for that exhibit for years, but I knew I needed to have something that had never appeared to the, the jurors of that event. And um, that was boy, it just like a horse kicked me in the head.
0: <laughs> Do you think you would have painted that wall were it not for the show?
4: Yeah, I probably would. It was just such a discovery. And to be two blocks from where I grew up and I had no idea it was even there.
0: So besides brick walls with ghost advertisements, your major passion in life is Corvettes and classic Mm -hmm. collector cars. Tell us a little bit about your history with the Corvette and how they became a major element of your work.
4: Well, about 20 years after I started painting the the ghost signs, I uh, bought the car of my dreams as a child, a, a 1966 Corvette. And I began showing those separately. Well, some people that I knew that were in a local Corvette club encouraged me to put one of the Corvettes in front of one of my walls. And I I said, well, I'll have to think about that, but I don't think they'd go together. (laughs) So I did that, and it's just like the first one that I published as a print series just sold out in the first nine or ten months. And I knew that I had something then. So I went back and I started publishing several of my other ones, and it's headed me down a different road. You know, periodically I look at what work that I'm doing, and I want to break away from it, at least as a series, not forgetting uh, what I've been doing with the ghost signs or the, uh, the Corvettes. But I like to do things that are a little bit different as well. Plate glass window reflections where you see three layers of vision and put those into, into the focus where you can see the uh, somewhat what's inside a store and you see a ghost image of one of them. Then you see the reflection of what's behind you. And, uh, if you're good, I guess you can put in a, um, you know, something that's in the, the mid range, usually me, but, uh, A lot of people don't recognize it as me.
0: (laughs) I'm going to go back and have a look. Your work is painstakingly detailed and full of texture, especially the bricks, which, I mean, are all painted individually. They're amazing. And I think you said somewhere that each work may take anything from 110 to 200 hours, depending on the size and the complexity. Talk us through your painting process.
4: Well, once I... um decide on a subject that I want to paint. I've usually photographed it. Uh, I make whatever changes I want in the preliminary drawings. And once I get it to an acceptable preliminary drawing stage, I do the drawing to scale the scale I want to paint it on a vellum paper, which is a real slick surface paper that's easily erased. And I will transfer that to my watercolor paper. Then um, I go back and after I transfer it, I have to redraw it yet again to strengthen the lines and then go ahead and start on the color. The uh, watercolor, mine is usually fairly dry brush, but I have certain sections that I like to do them wet on to wet. It's just um, most people look at the finished work and don't realize that I've done that. Having been an art teacher and an educator for 15 or 16 years, I'm very deliberate. I have to plan everything and know what it's going to be. That doesn't mean that I can't make some corrections or additions to it as I'm working on it. Sometimes it just, you know, I reach a point with a painting that I know I better leave it alone, turn it to the wall and start something else. And I'll come back to that in a month or so and I'll solve that problem. I'm not a real spontaneous person (laughs) in my life, (laughs) but um, this really works out as the best way to be successful every time.
0: I want to ask you about a painting called The Resurrection, which you painted back in 2014 after an incident that had the potential to be truly tragic. Tell us about the events of February the 12th that year and how you ended up commemorating it in a painting.
4: Well, at that time, I was a board member of the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We had a board meeting. The next morning, I was back home, and um, part of the floor caved in. Uh, It was known as the sinkhole. Basically, there was eight cars that fell into this hole. And really what happened is there was a cave 100 feet underneath the floor of that museum than no one knew about. And the water off of the, the museum building eroded away the roof of that cave and everything tumbled down into it. And wanting to help have the museum recover, I decided I wanted to create a painting and a series of limited edition prints as well to go with it with half the proceeds going to the museum's recovery project. And um, it turned out to be a very successful painting, and it really uh, did a lot for the museum. In fact, the museum we were very worried about it continuing, but this this program and a number of other programs, and their insurance, the um, donations flooded in from all around the world, and the news had put us into a different level of business, and. Um, The museum is now, after all those years, has really turned the corner and doing very,
0: very well. I remember that incident happening. And at the time, I think you said you didn't think it was in good taste to do a painting of the sinkhole scene, but people were asking you to do it. What made you change your mind?
4: Well, I realized that I could take and designate half of the the proceeds for that and the sale, 100% of the sale of the original to the museum's recovery. And I didn't feel like I was taking advantage of a bad situation. And by doing that, it really solved a lot of problems. I got to create one that people really remember me for creating. And somehow, um, they've sort of in advance, people forgave me <laughs> for taking advantage of a tragic situation.
0: I think two of my favorite works on your website are in the architectural series that you have. One is called For Brain and Brawn and the other one is Three Layers. They are so incredibly complex. They look like photographs of mosaics. Tell me about those walls. Where are they?
4: The the second one you mentioned is in Kansas City, Missouri, which is where I live. Or I live in suburban Independence, but I looked at this wall, and it had the big, huge basketball player doing a slam dunk. And it was a Reebok wall that had been painted for the final four when it was in Kansas City. And I challenged myself to do that because I knew it was going to be kind of hard. But I had already painted that wall before they put the basketball players on it. And I thought, you know, I kind of hesitated to do that. But it began to wear off as the basketball player, was not done with higher quality paint. And it began to weather off and show the other signs showing through. And it just added to the complexity of it. And it's, it's kind of a landmark for several years, it was. Eventually, they tore the building down for a new development. But um, it was really a great challenge to be able to do that. And I, I worked a little bit with the scale of the basketball player in a little different focus or size than uh, what originally had been painted there. What was the other one? I've forgotten. For brain and brawn. For brain and brawn was another Kansas City wall, and actually, <laughs> actually, it's the precursor to the other one painted on the same building. And when you look at the one we previously talked about, the for Brain and Brawn was an old Scotch Oats sign. And it had a Scottish bagpipes person, that item's logo. And that's really what I wanted to paint. But there was uh, also a tobacco sign to the left of it. And uh, another sign below them that was a flower sign. And then, um, like I said, I just eventually redid that painting with the uh, basketball player over it.
0: Ah, so it's interesting that I chose that I chose the same wall for the two that were my favorites. You couldn't have picked the same wall, <laughs> but it was. So, final question: What would be your dream Corvette brick wall combination? Or at this point in your career, have you actually painted every Corvette dream that you have?
4: No, I've got way too many Corvette dreams. <laughs> I've been considering doing one as the plate glass window reflection of one of the newer Corvettes or one of the 1960s Corvettes. Those are my two favorite generations. And um, doing a wall sign in a reflection in a plate glass window and with it actually being viewed in reverse on the wall because to do a a window reflection reflection, of that sign, it's going to appear as an image in reverse. But then put a Corvette in between the artist's view and the the, the actual wall. I've done a couple of others that have one that has a motorcycle on a wall that I photographed in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And it has four different signs that are very complex. And that one just drove me crazy. Some do and some don't.
0: Well, it sounds like that is going to be one that is at least 200 hours, possibly 300. It probably
4: will.
0: <laughs> Well, you can see Dana Forrester's works of corvettes, classic cars, brick walls and other series on his website at DanaForresterArt.com, as well as in his book, Against the Wall, the architectural and automotive art of Dana Forrester. Dana, thank you so much for sharing your art with us today.
4: Very good to uh, talk to you, Diana. Thank you.
0: And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And, of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, Candice Ivory, Marco Rossichelli, Janie Siemens-Hale, and Dana Forrester. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening, and please remember to include KOPN in your end-of-year giving. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri!